Having finally achieved commercial success with the release of Mortal Kombat, Paul W.S. Anderson turned down the chance of directing the ill-advised sequel Mortal Kombat Annihilation, along with offers to direct the first X-Men movie as well. Instead, Anderson chose the option to make an R-rated horror movie instead, which itself an unquestionably risky move on Anderson's part and ultimately a vision which would feel the wrath of the censor's shears when his initial cut received the Kiss of Death NC-17 rating from the MPAA. The film itself, equal parts blue-collar sci-fi and a homage to his favourite horror films, sees a rescue crew uncover the secrets of this interstellar Marie Celeste of the title. The film itself initially bombed at the box office, only to find a significant cult following since its release, especially as critics and audiences have returned to reevaluate Anderson's filmography, which this still remains one of the most curious entries. I'm Elwood. I'm Kim. And this is Movies and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. Welcome everyone to episode 3 of Movies and Tea. Uh, we're still continuing our journey through the filmography of Paul W.S. Anderson. Now we're on to possibly the film which served as the catalyst for this podcast. Because certainly when we were discussing directors and films which we wanted to look at. Uh, we originally had a director in mind for our first season. And then when we both found out that we both liked Event Horizon, it sort of all got scrapped so we could do Paul W.S. Anderson instead. And the rest is uh, is history, as they say. But Event Horizon is certainly a unique move for Paul W.S. Anderson. At this point, we've seen him do really sort of uh, the social thriller uh, with shopping. We then went on to do his first video game adaptation with Mortal Kombat. And now he's moved on to making horror movies. So in the space of three movies, he's covered three different, very different genres to each other. At the same time, we're still now starting to see the the familiar themes, especially in terms of the visual style of Anderson's work, which we start to see with Mortal Kombat. But first impressions, I mean, Kim, what is it about Event Horizon that really appeals to yourself? It's the thriller aspect. I really like psychological thrillers. And I, I feel like um, to do a really good psychological thriller is a huge challenge. And for the most part, I think that he achieves he achieves a right on spot. I, I like every time I watch Event Horizon, um, I I get so drawn into the film and so interested in what goes on, even if I know what's going to go on next. And I and I feel like there's like just this. There's like a deeper, deeper sort of story here that like there's like this unknown as well that surrounds the event horizon itself, um, which is the spaceship that it's called. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just just to clarify that. 
So not not the movie, but the ship itself, Event Horizon, has this like mystery around it that never really fully gets explained, I guess. But you kind of have to take the word for for it that it, it's kind of like it's kind of like they kind of say, oh, it went to hell and you know it came <laughs> back much worse, sort of thing. Um, and and it's 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 really neat because you know like I nothing is more traumatizing than watching someone you know, feel like, you know, they're getting played by the ship as they get like all these illusions that that, you know, their 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 loved ones and all the things that, that trouble them are coming back to life, you know? Oh definitely. I mean this old obviously takes place on an alternate history timeline. At this point according to Anderson's timeline, we're already have supposed to have colonized Mars, so we're behind schedule already. And in many ways we the event horizon is kind of like the interstellar Titanic of its time, because it sets forth on its maiden voyage in the year 2040, and then minutes into activating the drive, which essentially enables it to go faster than light, as we find out later, um, enables it to essentially fold space. So in layman's terms, it creates a direct, like a wormhole to go through, uh, to obviously get to sort of the furthest reaches of space, which was designed. So, well, you know, I mean, I mean, I think just to cut you there. If you weren't, if you don't understand what flipping time or flipping the the spaces, think like Stranger Things of upside down. That's pretty much the same concept, but on land. Yeah. So I mean, the ship itself it vanishes. Nobody knows where it is, and it's like declared like the worst tragedy in space history. And then nine months down the line, the spaceship reappears. Nobody knows where it's been or what's happened to the crew, and we. Uh, now following this rescue crew who were basically sent in to find out what happened to the ship. Along them, we've got Dr. Weir, who was the designer of the ship, who was played by Sam Neill. And Sam Neill, I think, is on incredible form here. And we're going to come back to his performance here because it's probably one of the greatest character shifts um that i've seen in like such a long time and i was only really reminded of it again when we were re-watching this film but right from the the start when we we're introduced to the event horizon i mean there's this ominous feeling to it before we even look inside the ship the fact it's in this like the orbit of neptune which is like shown as this stormy planet and we go inside and we've got bits of what we assume was the crew we've got this uh figure that's like floating in zero gravity and clearly something has gone down on the ship and as we basically follow this rescue crew they start to uncover the secrets of the ship and they realize that things aren't quite what they seem uh like you said kim the ship itself has come back changed and <laughs> yeah to Me- say the least mentally and physically i would say <laughs> Now, I mean, let's just obviously just talk visually about the ship. I mean, the ship itself is modelled after the Notre Dame Cathedral. So it's got this unquestionable Gothic look to it. So we've got this, the uh, spires, which are the turned upside down and used for the engine. The actual model used for the Event Horizon, there is an X-Wing model built into the top of it. If you're looking a bit closely, you can uh, see that as well. But even when we get inside... It's like a very much like a church design. We've got these crucifix style windows. We've got yeah. uh, this long passageway. These arches all around the doors, even. Yeah, so yeah. it makes me wonder why there's so much Christian iconography 
that's gone into the ship. It certainly plays well when we get obviously get onto the hell elements uh, there. But I mean, this is sort of like very much drawing inspiration from like Clive Barker, who did work on the pre-production for the film and you can see his paw prints all over this film um <laughs> especially when we get to the gore aspects because there's certainly the darker moments of this film is the sort of thing that anyone familiar with barker's work will know already certainly in terms of like things like hellraiser or if you're like a fan of norwegian death metal i mean this is this will be very much up your alley of what we're going to be exposed to in the film and and but yeah, this there's just something very visually appealing about this the design of the ship. It's very unlike anything that we've seen before. Um, and as you mentioned, right, I mean, this is blue collar space, which is something I always really loved. It's why I love the Alien Saga so much because, you know, at this point in history, space isn't about the elite few. This is just you know an everyday job. This is these are just everyday Joes who are out doing a job. It just happens to be in space. Um, so there's no like ill-fitting cob pieces or jumpsuits. It's all, you know, just regular guys and girls who are out there doing a job, which I just really, really, really like about this. Yeah, yeah, it's, I agree with that. Like, I mean, like, um, it, it it definitely has its appeal, especially because it makes the film a lot more fun and a lot mm. more easy to get into these characters. Um, it, like. Like, I, I mean, like, on top of that, like, there are a lot of really familiar faces. Like, I didn't even know, like, I mean, obviously, Laura, Lawrence Fishburne um, and uh, Sam Neill were two names that are incredibly familiar to me the first time I watched this film. Um, but, you know, as, you know, the years have gone by and I'm watching this now, I'm putting more, like, focus on things. And I'm like, I was like, oh, Jason Isaacs is in this. Hmm. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, right, Sean Pertry was in this, too. Oh, right, you know? You never realize these little um, connections in, like, the movies before that he's done and the people that they're bringing back and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, like, you've seen this change of, like, over the years, you know, like I've seen, you know, Jason Isaacs obviously in um, in the Harry Potter uh, series, <laughs> and now you see him in this in a much much younger role, and it's a completely different dynamic as to who, what he's playing as well. Like I, I I honestly didn't recognize him even watching it this time. So <laughs> there's like there's a whole lot like there you know it helps that you know. Um, the faces are are familiar now but at the same time it's you know the roles they play are are so like they kind of balance each other out and they have these like fun little um have these like it kind of it's it's kind of like an alien structure in many ways in the sense that you know you start at first you know you get to know them they joke a little you kind of have an idea of what their personalities are and then you know the the story moves on and you kind of like wonder like you start seeing um what's you know what are their demons as the movie goes along and and that's that's a really neat take on like um just having the 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 setting that they chose yeah definitely i think certainly when we talk about the the setting for for the film i mean the original script for the film saw the crew back crew very similar to alien i mean it's very hard to like to not to compare this film to alien because they are very similar i mean it's the haunted house in space which is the same for both films here the original script for this did see the crew fighting like very lovecraftian aliens that had taken over the ship so we have these like long tentacled aliens that they were battling and anderson rightfully felt that 
Infinity is stuck with that idea. It's going to be too much of an alien ripoff. It's not going to be the sort of film he wanted to make. So instead, still very much in that Lovecraftian vibe, he goes for the unspeakable horror side of things. So what happens to the crew? We get in like very quick sort of bursts. Again, this is mainly due to the censors because a lot of the fate of the crew was a lot more spe- a lot more explicit in the original cut. But we get this sense of the the unseeable horror uh, element which he goes with, and I think it's much more to the the crew's the film's benefit that we go down that path. But like we were saying, with as with Alien, these are just like everyday folks, and we can see that in like how the crew interact, as you as you said. And I think one of the key moments when Dr. Weir is explaining how the drive, the gravity drive, like the heart of uh, the event horizon works. And he's like, tries to do the science thing and he's like, no, break it down to layman terms. And then he's like, he's trying to explain again. He's like, no, break it down further. <laughs> so these are, you can tell that why they work in space. They, you know, they're not into like the specifics and the science of, of how space travel works. The actual gravity drive, how he explains it using a, a magazine and a pencil just to show how space is bends. And I thought it was just like a really great touch. And there's so many aspects of this film where you think, oh, that's just like a flamboyant flare. Like when we look at the gravity drive itself and it's like this rotating orb, um, which does bring back obviously memories of Hellraiser's Lament Cube, uh, the puzzle box. And this was actually intentional because uh, Anderson's a big fan of Hellraiser and he wanted to make the drive his own version of the puzzle box so we get that and even when we're looking at like the Psycho Funhouse Tunnel which is like yeah this grinder tunnel and you think that's just health and safety nightmare right off, right off. Uh, but yeah but it, it, it's inc- incredible because I actually went um, I think I went to uh, a, a Ripley's in I think the Ripley's believe it or not, in New York or something. I can't remember okay. New York or Niagara Falls or something. And they had that exact tunnel. I remember taking a picture in it. I really loved it. I was like, oh, my God, this is awesome, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I think that, like, visually, like, we're, we're kind of going back into, like, the ship design now. But I really, really, like, think that the ship design is one of those things that really give it character. Like, not only is it talking about, you know, like, just the cathedral design throughout, but also, like, these little these little things, like, the core, the core drive is like this um, big part of a uh, big part of the the movie itself. So as you go in, you kind of like have these little spinning things and these little like deceptive corridors where you're like, oh, someone's going to get dizzy and fall down or something, you know. And then you have like you walk in, there's all these like spiky walls and this big thing that turns and makes a weird sound or something. <laughs> and and then it, it turns into this like um Starship Troopers, star, is star, is, yeah, Starship Troopers sort of like uh, gate. Is it Starship Trooper? Um, that this, uh, no, Stargate, uh, Stargate SG one. Yeah. That sort of like thing that transports you through. And you, there's like all these little like I think that maybe like what feels weird is that Event Horizon. Like I don't know the the time frame of this and all these other things that show up in the film, but like whether it's it's inspired other movies to do things or whether it was inspired by something else. But I mean, I never have problems with movies that like kind of pay homage to, to things they really think are creative and things that they find are, you know, really interesting. I think that it's, it's nice, you know, like, it, especially if they work it in a unique way, 
into the story that they're building. And and that's I think that's also one thing that's one of the reasons why I do like Event Horizon so much. Yeah, I think you really nailed it nailed it down there. It's it's the construction. It's it's great that he's homaging these different horror movies and it's he's not just uh cutting and pasting ideas. It's like Tarantino, it's it's all about the construction. It's how he uses those ideas and puts them into his own uh his own film. And certainly with the gravity drive, I love the fact that in the I mean again in the original script it's just a standard sort of mechanical device but in Anderson's hands it becomes this object of fascination and ultimately it's what's seen as sending various crew members either mad or possessed it's it's a little unclear what mm-hmm. uh like you said it also serves as a portal to hell so it serves many functions and just the way it moves the way the lights come on it's got this very it's seemingly got its life of its own you've got the feeling that it's like the ship itself um that it's come back with this sentient mind uh it's not this idea that the ship itself is haunted it's like the ship itself is now alive because it's been possessed by whatever dimension it ended up in be it hell or some hell hell dimension that it's uh ended up in and as we said while it's like seems like a lot of visual flair we're seeing a lot of Anderson's favorite trademarks, such as the endless corridor, as we see with that yeah. grinder corridor, which I love the fact that, that he and that and like the I wrote what I really love was sorry that I interrupted you, but like what I love is the fact that there's this like huge long corridor between the front and the back of the ship, and I think that that is like and like we've been talking about long corridors and his his love for it, and it just kind of like piqued my interest, and suddenly I was like, oh yeah, this one has it too, you know. <laughs> I mean, even works in symmetry, like the de- the explosive devices that go along the corridor, because he's he's worked out the way to have the ship so that the middle section, which is this long corridor, um, he's going to have these explosive charges, but they're all in symmetry, which <laughs> is, is so sort of like he had to work in symmetry some way, so he like works it in the explosive devices still. The if the crew had need to escape the ship, they would all go in the front portion, and it would blow apart in the back portion would like force the uh, front part and I love the fact he's clearly sat down and thought okay I've got these visual ideas but I have to explain it so we want to have this gr- meat grinder corridor but we can't just have that so it's sort of like oh this is uh, to avoid the compromising of the magnetic fields caused by the gravity drive so he explains away anything that sort of like seems like a gratuitous visual flair at all and I mean the real trick here is the fact we see about five different areas of the ship. We see like the bridge, the med bay, the hallway, um, and the engine room. But in our minds, I've played this trick that we've seen the whole ship mm-hmm. when we've only seen like five areas, but we get this feeling that we've seen the whole ship, much like with Alien. We never see the whole of the Nostromo, but we have in our mind that we've been to all, all the different areas of the ship, even though we've only seen like a small yeah. little portion of it. Um, and certainly when we get into the fin- the finale and uh, we've got the um, Kathleen Quinlan's character who mm. in her mind she I mean she's the whole film she's been her fear is for her son who is uh, disabled for him to be in pain so okay we're just going to say now spoiler alert um, she's 
at the end, she uh, feels that she sees him and he's like, she goes to chase after him and ends up falling to her demise in a really cool death sequence. And it's not only this wonderful nod to uh, Don't Look Now, the the ending where uh, the lead thinks that he sees his daughter, the this girl in the little, red, little girl in the red coat, um, who he's been sort of like taunting him through like the streets of Venice. So it's a real fun sort of play on that scene. Is it? Is it though? I, I've never seen Don't Look Now, but I actually, um, I actually thought about um, because there was one scene where uh, her boy was standing in like uh, water, and I actually thought it actually reminded me of uh, that it scene with like. Um, with the with the little boy in the yellow raincoat just standing at the end of the sewage um, area, also. So I don't know. I don't. I like. I don't know. I'm, I've never seen Don't Look Now, but that was what I thought of when I saw it. Yeah, I think that's just the some of these homages. You can tell that Anson's a big horror fan because some of them are a little more obscure than others. I mean, he works in the blood torrent from The Shining, which we obviously see coming out of the lift in that memorable scene, um, and which has since been memed to death. And here he gives us his own version, which he honestly he was the reason he cast Jolie Richardson for because he wanted to have her specifically in that scene because he thought that this posh speaking English actress would be really amusing in his mind to see her covered in this torrent of blood that was like flowing down this hallway. So it worked for him, and she's great in the film. Um, I mean, just going back to the cast here. I mean, this is. As you said, Ray, this is a cast of known actors like Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Neill, and lesser-known actors. Like we've got Richard T. Jones as Cooper, who provides the the much-needed humor elements of the film. We've also got this really sort of adopted mother-son relationship between Catherine Quinlan's character and Jack Noseworthy, and I couldn't help but wonder if the relationship they have, because he calls her Mama Bear, she calls him Baby Bear. Um, is this sort of like him being, is he like the surrogate son to her? Because he's obviously away from her own son for like months at a time. Is this a way of dealing with being away from her own son that she has this surrogate son in the youngest crew member? Um, and, and they seem to share this mutual bond, even though it's never really fully explored. We just get the, obviously the pet names they have for each other. Yeah, I, I would. I think. I think that that I thought about that too, and I felt like her character really focused on um, the mom aspect and just like her regrets as a mom. So I feel that like as the movie went along, it was kind of like, you know, the first person that was targeted was the character of Justin, which is Baby Bear, and and um, it feel, it feels like you know as as she's struggling with like this character being constantly. <laughs> attacked <laughs> which is like <laughs> it was I felt so bad for that character I was like oh my god this is so horrible and then it's like you know he just keeps getting all the crappy deals you know he gets thrown <laughs> into space and all that stuff and then she keeps getting these um, you know she keeps getting these traumatic events of just like this you know as you call it a surrogate son sort of character that is going through the things that you know her, the pain that her son is going through as well you know, it feels like that's probably what breaks her and makes her one of those characters which are easier for, like, the ship to, I guess, invade into her, her mental space, I guess. Oh, definitely. And it's interesting to see how the different characters obviously deal with the situation because 
Lawrence uh, Fishburne, his character Captain Miller, he's very methodical in his approach, um, despite the fact he's just like clearly there to do a job. I mean, he's haunted by this uh, the memories of this crew member he lost on a previous job, and he's very much now driven to the fact that he will never leave a crew man behind. He will never lose someone on a, on a job, and the ship. Um, as I said, it taps into these fears, so he's like constantly taunted by the the images of this burning crewman. Um, other members of the crew don't seem to ever be affected, but at the same time, they're more sort of caught up in the events that are happening to the other crew. So they know something's happening, even though it's not happening directly to them. And certainly, one of the when we look at Jason Isaac's character, DJ. Um, his character, in particular his fear, and is this obviously this uh, in relation to his own childhood surgeries, which is in the script, but again it's something that suffered on the uh, on the current room floor, and it, the scars on his chest that we obviously see, because he gets a really Barker-esque death in the fact that he's basically strung up yeah. and eviscerated. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas obviously when we look at like Sean Pertwee's Smith, who's basically like the engineer, he just knows something's going down and he's going to get off this ship. And I felt so sorry for him when he finally rebuilds his ship, which has suffered all this damage and he's like ready to go. And then he like discovers the fact that um, a bomb has been planted on it. And you can see this look of, oh no, I've just rebuilt this thing. (laughs) Like his last one. And it, it just made me wish that Anson worked with Sean Pertwee more because he's just so good in this and he was so good in shopping. Um, yeah. It's a shame they didn't really work more and now we obviously get to enjoy Sean Pertwee doing essentially the same thing in Gotham. But Yeah. Oh, man, I love you. are talking about that Sean Pertwee and Gotham. So good, so good. I actually, <laughs> I actually, like, I actually, like, um... I actually heard him, uh, heard Sean Pertwee talk at uh, Toronto Comic Con one year. And it was amazing. Like, this man is, like, really, really cool. He's a cool dude. <laughs> I feel that, yeah. I think certainly but, cinema Gotham, seeing how he's, like, used the character of Alfred on Gotham. Yeah. And it's great the fact he seems to have used all the notes that uh, Michael Caine brought over to Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, the fact that he's now an ex-military man. And these are all, like, notes that... Um, Michael Caine brought to it because he was like reinvented the character of Alfred. He was sort of like, where well, the if the Waynes wanted someone who's going to like look after their son, they want like someone who's like ex-military. So in the character in Alfred, the way Michael Caine reinvented it, he's like ex-SAS. Um, so he's able to look after himself, and you know he that makes him the ideal protector for Bruce Wayne. And I love the fact that he's just carried across all these notes that Michael Caine has developed for this character, and is now working it into his own vision within the realm of Gotham, uh, which for my money is still one of the best superhero shows on TV at the mm-hmm. moment. I think it's well worth, well worth discovering if you haven't already, but... Yeah, so going, going, <laughs> we had a little Gotham sidetrack. Um, going back, no, I, I think the thing that... Uh, I think like one of the things that people need to remember, I think, is that um, it's really nice to see that people are reevaluating Paul Anderson's films right now. And especially since we're kind of joining in that sort of movement. Um, Because, you know, if you think about it, we talked to, like you mentioned before, you know, Paul Anderson did two movies before they did. He did one, which is an action video game adaptation. And then he did one, which was um, a social thriller. 
So this is his first move into something like a psychological horror thriller sort of style. And um, it's it's a big challenge. You know, personally, I think it's a big challenge because horror thrillers are, you know, like one in a million. Not a lot of people are able to, to get there, you know. And I feel that it's, you know, like if you think about it, he achieved quite a bit with this one. Um, as much as, you know, there are a lot of homages, if you think about a lot of, like, debut titles from, like, say, indie horror directors nowadays, a lot of people base their movies through homages, too, <laughs> as, you know, uh, a key selling point. And, you know, to think that, you know, he actually worked this into just paying homage while sharing a story and um, that he, you know, and directing a story that really intrigued him, along with having all these, like, really... Um, uh, gory and kind of like uh, it, it's 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 an intense experience to say the least. Like you you don't expect it to be this intense, you know. Like you didn't. It, it's 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 quite you know like like you said you know like just just looking at how Jason's Isaac's Jason Isaac's character kind of like goes. It's it's kind of uh, there are there there are a lot of really really um, disgusting moments. Um, so I, I think like you know as as, as just like what he's done here, it really, I feel like he's done a really great job as like the first horror film that he's done. He, you know, he, he's able to create a lot of the atmosphere, um, build a really nice setting and his cast is able to, you know, give that kind of like alien vibe where, you know, they're like a team of like normal people who doesn't really know a lot about space. And, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, I think that everything really works well together and it, it's surprising how, it wasn't well received, and I wonder why it wasn't well received when it first came out. I think mainly because of the fact it it, it was a gory horror. I mean, gory horror Maybe. wasn't at the time wasn't doing well. I mean, horror as a whole was on sort of on the decline. Um, yeah. Many sort of franchises sort of burnt themselves out at this point. I think Jason yeah. was busy taking over Manhattan around this sort of period and... yeah i think jason over taking over manhattan was like 96 or something so yeah it was around that time i mean nightmare of oh, a nightmare had a bunch of movies by then i think also and halloween also was in their like x amount of films as well you know yeah. all the, you know a lot a lot of main franchises all were were uh busy running away, running out of steam. <laughs> it's just the thing, I think a lot of the, the great horror icons that were still putting out movies had become more sort of pop culture icons and it had become more about the kill than the suspense leading up to it. I mean, Freddy was more about, oh, what's one line is he going to do? Jason was like, how's he going to dispatch the disposable teens this time? And I think people were very much sort of burnt out on horror, especially after like the glut of horror movies we had for like the golden 80s. days of like the 80s um and i think this film i don't know it's, it's so different as well i mean this is a, as i said this is a sci-fi horror which itself isn't the most overworked of genres uh when we certainly look at the horror genre i mean obviously we've got like alien we've got predators sort of like the standout examples and you have something like this which i'm so glad that it's now been rediscovered and certainly the fact that it was really when he was released on VHS and it's sort of through word of mouth it sort of picked up um, this sort of like cult following which it rightfully deserves but this is a film which is so yes it's while it's certainly gory I mean the first three quarters of the film is played very psychological I mean mm -hmm. here Anderson is able to create more terror through the sound of fingertips running over fabric than 
any of the gory effects that we see up to this point. Yeah. I mean, we get a couple of gory frills, such as seeing what happens when someone goes into a vacuum. Um, yeah. That's kind of cool to see. But it's like, by the time... It's all about the building up. It's all in at this point. It's also like mind games and like mm. and sort of like jump uh, jump scares as he builds yeah. up to his final quarter. And this is where the film like it sort of like not only goes off the rails but like <laughs> careers like off the rails into sort of like you see where he's like what he's been building up to as we get like this reveal of what happened to the crew through these like quick cuts of the footage of them after they've as it, well, we assume they've basically gone into this whole dimension and everything's gone to, gone tail in a handbasket um, the crew are basically mutilating each other there's cannibalism, there's people being killed in horrible ways um, the actual footage of the crew being sent to hell was originally more gruesome um, but it was like heavily cut down to the flashes that we get, I mean there's actually some notes and there's some stills that are available that show people like being garroted with barbed wire. There's spikes mm. being put through. There's in the notes. There's uh, scenes of a. There's notes of a girl having her breasts torn off. Um, oh. There's a. Th- my favorite part of the notes is the fact that they're talking about this amputee actor because they employed several amputee actors that they build fake prosthetic limbs for, which they could then destroy. And he talked the special effects guy. He talks about the guy they got brought in for the scene he's like oh he's like actually better off his legs than he is on them and that they built in these fake legs that were going to be like beaten and broken up with iron bars and <laughs> there's people that there is like apparently this footage out there but um whether we're going to ever see like a cabal cut of this film the same way that we got with nightbreed where they're going to reinsert all this like footage that apparently there's like a VHS cut, which is like got all the gore in and uh, includes some like really cool sequences, such as there's a homage to The Exorcist where we see a naked Sam Neill doing a spider walk um, <laughs> down a ladder, which I, I find for certainly like kind of cool. So uh, sorry to anyone who wants to see naked Sam Neill. It doesn't happen. And <sighs> on the DVD, there are some deleted scenes like we get to see them. There's a tooth that's floating in zero gravity, but because the special facts haven't been completed, you can see the string holding it. But Lawrence yeah. and Lawrence Fishburne's like acting like in this uh, supposedly zero gravity environment, uh, which is really a credit to him that he sells zero gravity as well as he does. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's there's certainly some interesting uh, ideas there. I mean. There's much talk of like cannibalism and murder and the fact that they drafted in all these like adult actors to film this this scene that was ultimately cut. Um, so whether it's something that works sounds great on paper that didn't actually work in in real life, it's hard to say. But I feel that because he restrains himself, that we while we certainly do get gore, I mean we obviously get the self mutilation Doctor Weir inflicts on himself. Which, I have to say, first time I saw this was real, sort of like, oh, that's kind of shocking, uh, <laughs> to say the least. It it really comes completely out of left field, and the gore moments that make up that final quarter really catch you off guard. And I think the film's only the more affected the fact it's had to be pulled back from the original intention. I mean, as we said already, Anson set out to make this like an R-rated horror movie, so he was going to go like full out with the gore and splatter, and 
because the censors were going to give it the NC-17 rating, that he had to like trim it down and made it as well because the, the test audiences weren't reacting well to his vision. And it, I mean, it's ultimately it comes off all the more effective, like the scene when we have the scenes with Doctor Weir, who at this point's been like fully possessed by the ship, and he's like self mutilating himself, uh, and just seeing how everything's basically going to hell for this rescue crew. Um, it's just it just seems comes off all the more effective the fact that it's now more restrained than just like balls to the wall gore and splatter, which I think. <laughs> either works well or it will like kill the audience's interest dead yeah. it's a very fine line to go yeah. and certainly when we look at films like in like the new french extremity movement so seeing such as like martyr and frontiers um high tension or switchblade romance um you can see that when those films like push the boundary too far that they lose the audience whereas when you look at something like martyrs it's walking that tightrope of like shock and gore um that is very effective when you can pull it off but it is a very difficult trick to pull off and i think what we ultimately end up with here is is ultimately more effective in my personal opinion i don't know about yourself kim well yeah i i definitely do i mean i i i like the fact that he focused i think because he dialed it back that he had to focus more on that thriller aspect and that I, and i mean like as much as you know i mean i'm not I never found gore very um, scary in that sense where, like, yeah, they have, like, you know, it's disgusting. Mm. But but making me sick from dis- <laughs> disgusting me and scaring me are two very, very different feelings. Um, so a movie that disgusts me is not necessarily good, but a movie that thrills me into being really intense and, and feeling, like, very anxious about the movie... Um, is a really huge achievement because um, I have this really wonderful. I, I'm really good at predicting what goes on in movies. I find movies really predictable, so thrillers are really hard for me to enjoy sometimes. But I always love um, movies that can give me that, you know, that really nice feeling of just feeling like that adrenaline rush as mm. they go through these uh, these uh, scary scenes and <laughs> horrible situations. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> well, I mean, Jason <laughs> Isaac, uh, Jason uh, Isaacs um, actually wanted the dummy that they used for his corpse hanging, but the special effects crew were apparently so freaked out by the request that they declined and said they needed it for further shots, even though they didn't. So what <laughs> he wanted that for, I don't know, but <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, this is going on for a little bit long. So, if we were to look at movies similar to, um, before we wrap this up, to talk about movies that are similar to this one that you would, you know, kind of recommend as, like, a pairing or a double feature or whatever, what would you suggest? For myself, um, I would go with Pandorum. This is a a film which I've really been sort of, like, like, much like The Fall, uh, since I've I watched it, I've been trying to get everyone I know who's like into these sorts of films to uh, check it out. It's again, it's one of those films that came out, and I remember people like sort of talking about it at the time. I mean, this was two thousand nine. This was released. It's a German British sci fi horror, uh, but when you look at it, it's very similar visually to Event Horizon. And I'm just gonna say, watch this film blind. Uh, because you will get such more of a payoff than if you 
as I say, if you if you know know too much about it. Um, but I mean, this is a great cast. It uh, features Dennis Quaid and Ben Foster. Um, basically, they wake up in this from hypersleep to find themselves on the ship. They have no idea who they are or where where they are because of obviously the effects of hypersleep. And as they slowly adapt to the situation they find that not everything is quite what it seems and and they also suddenly start to discover things about themselves which may also relate to the situation they find themselves in um yeah i think pendulums is pro if you're looking for a a good comparison that piece i think then uh, pendulum is a great one to uh pair with uh event horizon um other than that, I would say Sunshine by Danny Boyle. Um, I think Danny Boyle owes a lot, again, to Paul W.S. Anderson. We said already that he sort of snuck in with Shallow Grave after Shopping came out to sort of launch the revival of Brit, uh, British cinema. Um, again, when you look at the finale of Sunshine, it's very hard to not compare it to Event Horizon, the mysterious uh, crazy man on board the ship. <laughs> well, don't reveal too much. I still haven't seen Sunshine yet. Um I it's haven't in the seen trailer. Sunshine. It is on my list. Everybody <laughs> tells me to watch it, yes. and, uh, and uh, I haven't seen it yet. Um, but for myself, uh, the first movie that came to mind was um, Sphere, uh, 1998 Sphere with Dustin Hoffman and Sharon Stone, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, obviously. Um, to be honest, I don't really remember much about this film, <laughs> but I do remember it was a sci-fi thriller, and there was one part that um, I literally shrieked and jumped out of my seat when I was watching it. <laughs> So um, I don't know if that will still happen today since I watched it like 10 years ago. But um, I think like Sphere is also one of those movies which are um, kind of like cult acclaimed uh, and not so much uh, very loved by the people who first saw it. At least <laughs> um, I was looking at some of the stuff. I think it was like uh, some some odd low percentage on Rotten Tomatoes or something. Um, yeah, but how can you but, trust Rotten Tomatoes? <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> I usually I usually feel very different, uh, quite the opposite from it. But uh, yeah, other than that one, I mean, I would say something a little bit more recent would be 2013's Europa Report, which is a, a indie film set in. Uh, it actually feels very similar to this one, where it's like you know, it's a future and people are exploring in their spaceship, and it's just like a ragtag team of people. It's like normal people. You really feel like they're, um, you know, they have their little moments where they bond, and then you start feeling like you know they land on this like um, island, and then they like this island, this planet. And um, they start, you know, uh, they start experiencing these things or these uh, they start feeling like like it's a it's a it's something that I don't want to get too into. Um, it also is kind of like a Pandorum deal where you should go in knowing least possible to really like discover the magic and the secrets that are in this thriller. Um, I know it has like very mixed reviews as well, but I really liked it. Um, it could be the. Daniel Wu aspect, but I really like it. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, both both uh, really good. One I've I've seen I've seen Spear, and I definitely agree that it's a great one to pair. I mean, Spear also ties into that idea of of the line between reality and and hallucination. What's uh, what's going on? I think they both have similar ideas and I think Spear does some really interesting ideas it's again it's one of those films that wasn't appreciated when it came out and I think it's gained that sort of cult following afterwards and I think to really sort of put an end note on this when 
Anson was going into work with Kurt Russell on the, on the film we're going to be talking about on ne- our next episode, Soldier. Um, he showed him Event Horizon, and Russell basically said to him, forget about what this movie's doing now. In 15 years' time, this is going to be the movie you're glad you made. And I think that perfectly sums up how I feel about Event Horizon. I'm glad that he made it. And I, while it may not have like been this critical darling of a movie and this huge success for Anderson, I think it's a movie I'm so glad that he made. I still think it's fantastic, even after numerous viewings of this film. And it's still yeah. a film that I love to come back to and sort of on a yearly basis and just like find new details or just enjoy the thrill ride that it is. But uh, yeah. Out of his uh, filmography, I think Event Horizon is always going to be that that special one for me. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, as I said, that brings us to the end of this uh, episode. And uh, Kim, what are we going to be looking at for our next episode? Even though well, we've essentially given it away already. <laughs> we just talked about it. So we're going to be looking at Soldier, which was released in 98 and stars Kurt Russell. Woo! Awesome. <laughs> um, of course, uh, I'd like to say thank you as always to my co-host, Miss Kimlo. Thanks. <laughs> and uh, if you haven't done already, please do like or hit that subscribe button. We are now available on a variety of platforms. We are available on Podomatic, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. So uh, there's plenty of ways to uh, interact with the show. Uh, also, you can uh, hit us up on both Facebook or you can also hit us up on Twitter as well. And, yes, uh, and you can check us out. And you can check it out. Check us out our archive, which also has some of our reviews, <laughs> which is uh, our written reviews, which is um, at moviesandtpodcast.wordpress.com. But until next time, gas on! Thank <laughs> you.